1: The U.S. Supreme Court appeared divided on Tuesday over whether federal anti-discrimination law protects gay and transgender employees, as the justices heard arguments in a clash that will define the workplace rights of millions of people. Joining me is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, these were three separate cases, but with one legal issue under Title VII,
2: all three cases revolve around Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, really one of the most important pieces of legislation Congress has ever enacted that is, I think, most familiar to us as the central employment discrimination law in the country. And Title VII basically prohibits most employers, basically every business with more than you know a small number of employees, from discriminating against their employees on the basis of, among other things, sex. We've understood for as long as Title VII has been on the books that sex means you can't fire someone because they're a woman or even because they're a man, the question in all three of these cases is, does that also mean you can't fire someone because they are of a particular sexual orientation? Does that mean you can't fire someone because they identify as a particular transgender status, that they have a gender identity that might differ from what you perceive their biological sex to be? And so basically, it's all about the meaning of sex.
1: I understood that the plaintiffs, part of their argument was appealing to the text of the statute in order to get some of the textualists on the court on their side?
2: It's right, absolutely right. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about this case is that in a world in which we were all just pure, formal textualists, the law would actually seem to be pretty favorably on the side of the employees, of the challengers here, of those who are arguing that Title VII should extend to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. I think the problem that arose and that we saw from the oral argument on Tuesday morning is that the justices, I think, are not necessarily quite the fervent, committed, textualist that they always put themselves out to be.
1: Let's explain it a little bit, because so Justice Scalia was known as a textualist. He was the sort of almost the leader, the father of the movement. And Justice Gorsuch is supposed to be one of those who follow Scalia.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea behind textualism and the animating principle is that when the words of a statute are clear, there's just nothing appropriate in looking behind those words, basically that the words should be the first place the courts look, and if the words are clear, it should be the last place they look. And, you know, I think what the plaintiffs are arguing in these cases is that if you look at it through that lens, it's pretty obvious that discriminating on the basis of sex um, means discriminating on the basis of anything having to do with your... Your sexual identity with your biological sex your sexual orientation your you know transgender status and so the that's why they think that this case could and should be decided solely on the basis of text at least based on the questioning of the oral arguments on Tuesday you know some of the more conservative justices seem to have real concerns about that and I think the larger point there June is that You know, for all the talk about textualism, I think justices tend to be, um, for lack of a better word, not entirely consistent about when they are faithful to that principle above everything else and when other considerations, you know, may and do factor into play.
1: Justice Gorsuch asked whether the court shouldn't leave matters to Congress, saying the court's decision could lead to massive social upheaval. So he's really looking way beyond the
2: text. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the notion that the court should leave this decision to Congress, I think, ignores the very possible answer that Congress has already resolved this issue. Um, You know, there's no question that when it comes to statutory interpretation, um, the court's job is to act basically as the faithful agent of the legislature. And the question here is whether Congress, when it wrote that language into the statute, you know, would have had a hard time believing that as our understandings of sex-based discrimination evolved, that those understandings would also be reflected um, in what Title VII prohibits. You know, I think the, the notion that we should pump this back to Congress um, may be attractive to the justices as a dodge, but I think it's inconsistent with the notion that we can, you know, re- resolve these cases many times by just looking at what the words say.
1: Now, what is the trend then in the courts of late, in the lower courts, as far as the interpretation of the word "sex" in these so, so in the
2: I mean, part of how these cases got to the Supreme Court is the lower courts have actually divided, at least in the context of sexual orientation. Um, There actually hasn't been nearly as much percolation on the question of transgender status. I mean, I think you know courts are relatively new to the problem of how to map onto you know gender identity um, and non-binary gender status, um, sort of relatively classical constructions of of sex. Um, But you know, the lower courts I think have been more skeptical, I think, of of extending Title VII to the transgender context. I think part of what's interesting about the Supreme Court here is there was no question that the Supreme Court really was going to have to step in, at least on the sexual orientation cases because the lower courts had divided. The court really reached out to take up the transgender status case. Um, There really had not been the full kind of development in the lower courts that we usually see before the Supreme Court weighs in. And you know, I think some speculation there is that maybe the court thought it could split the difference um, and hold the Title VII extends to one of those class of cases, but not the other. You know, I did not see a lot in the argument transcript from Tuesday, suggesting that the justices are looking at the cases that way. They may end up there, but at least, you know, based on the arguments, they seem to be, you know, viewing all three of these cases as rising and falling on the same arguments.
1: Is this case a test of whether Justice Kennedy's legacy in terms of gay rights will survive a more conservative
2: court? I think this case certainly is um, a very important referendum on how the Supreme Court looks after Justice Kennedy. You know, I think folks um, probably will remember that one of Justice Kennedy's real, I think, visible contributions um, was writing for a major- the majority of the court in just about all of the court's major decisions in the area of gay rights. I mean, from Romer versus Evans in 1996 to Lawrence versus Texas to Windsor, which struck down Doma to Obergefell in gay marriage, those are all opinions by Justice Kennedy. These Cases are a little different, June, because these are statutory cases. Um, but, you know, the implications, I think, are at least as profound. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do think that if the court ends up not um, treating sexual orientation um, and or transgender status as sex-based discrimination for purposes of Title VII, I think that really will be a sign of, you know, a sign of the times of a post-Kennedy court. On the flip side, I mean, if the court ends up agreeing with the plaintiffs here, um, I think that'll be a sign of perhaps of how much the court itself has moved, maybe because of Justice Kennedy's contributions.
1: Can you tell at all or venture a guess from reading the transcript as to which way they'll come down?
2: You know, I, I, sometimes you really can go through a Supreme Court transcript and have a pretty good feel um, for how the court's going to rule. I, I don't really see it here. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it's going to be sharply divided. Um, I think it's a pretty safe bet that, you know, the four progressive justices are likely going to side with the plaintiffs, at least in the sexual orientation case. Um, you know, maybe they'll try to split the difference with some of their conservative colleagues. I think it's almost certain that, you know, at least three of the conservatives um, will side with the employers in both cases. and. I I think, you know, the real question becomes, what about, you know, the, the, the justices who really are increasingly in the median, um, if not in the middle? And that's, you know, Justice Gorsuch, Chief Justice Roberts, maybe Justice Kavanaugh. And I just, you know, I don't know that we can have any confidence from the transcript how really any of those three are going to vote in these cases.
1: Finally, the Trump administration was fighting on both sides of the issue in this case, the EOC on one side and the Justice Department on the other?
2: So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, this happens sometimes where you have, you know, government units that have independent litigating authority that have their own position. And the EEOC historically has actually been a, a leader in this space, um, whereas the Justice Department, I think, was, you know, quite aggressively pushing um, on behalf of the, the employers in these cases. You know, I think that's not unheard of, although it's always a little awkward when you see it, um, you know, where you see the sort of the agency tasked with actually enforcing our employment laws coming out one way and the Justice Department saying, you know, know, no, you shouldn't. I don't know that that's going to tip the scales, you know, in these cases. I think the justices don't need the help. Um, That really, I think what this is going to come down to is as between really what should be a relatively straightforward case under you know, modern textualism and the concerns that, you know, Justice Gorsuch alluded to at the argument, which way the justices are going to go, um, anyone who knows for sure, I think, is, is, is either, you know, uh, one of those justices or is selling something.
1: Thanks, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas School of Law.